Hey folks, I am Rebecca, Blonde in the Belly of the Beast, and today I with I have with me, I can't even talk. It, it was a rough night last night for my baby and I, and I know you just had a new baby, so this interview might not go super well. I don't know. Uh, you look pretty tired, so. Uh, I am, I am. <laughs> uh, so I have Dave Cullen of Culture Wars. He's an independent journalist. He has a YouTube channel, content creator. Um, so hello, Dave. Thank you for joining me today. Dave Riley. Dave what Collins, did I call you? Irish. We're both Dave. We're both Irish. <laughs> I get it. I look more Italian. Did I just call uh, you Dave Cullen? <laughs> yeah, it's cool though. This He's is going to be a disaster. Be It'll sad. be fun. It'll be fun. It'll, It'll be, be fun. Wreck. Yeah. Um. Probably. Yeah. So Dave and I are buddies. IRL. Like IRL. So we've talked about this a bunch in our own lives, but recently I've been since I've started making content again, and I've talked about this a little bit on my on my podcast, but I've never talked about it on my channel. I have been getting just terrible imposter syndrome. I, I read all these comments about myself and they're just glowing reviews of my content. And like, like people think that like, I'm a really solid put together person. And it's making me feel terrible because almost nobody knows that I used to be an alcoholic train wreck. And I know a lot of people um, they, they overestimate uh, and, and they say that their alcoholism was like much worse than it actually was. Mine was really bad. It was really bad. I nearly destroyed my life. Um, and I've been sober for a few years now. And so I was thinking about uh, doing a conversational stream about this with somebody that has a similar yet dissimilar background. And you're such an interesting person. And I know you have a lot to say about this. So I thought we could have a little discussion about addiction and faith and the modern world. And hopefully it won't be a disaster because I'm a uh, real tired. That's <laughs> okay. So am I. It's been, uh, you know, up every couple of hours, my wife's doing a breastfeeding thing, you know, Good. she's been, uh, my daughter's been around for a month now and uh, still haven't been to a hospital, haven't taken any injections, none of that nonsense. A whole month? It's so, already been a month. It's already been a month. It's like flown by so quickly. It's, oh, I mean, wow. she's already growing and smiling, you know, and uh, um, <laughs> it's weird because, That's you know, so I never thought that I would have a kid. Um, yeah, yeah. For multiple reasons, but you know, one of them being uh, where I was, uh, yeah. you know, 10, 10 years ago. Uh, yeah, about. yeah. That's about so, yeah, 10 years ago. That's when I was uh, an active, active addiction. Yeah. Yeah. It's been uh, it's been a while and a lot of things have happened, I guess, you know, between now and then for me. Um, but it's still something that, you know, we deal with every day. Uh, it's still something that all addicts uh, deal with. Um, yeah. on a daily basis, really. So my story is basically, um, you know, I grew up in a pretty irreligious household, I guess. Me and my mom went to church. My dad left the church in 1973 uh, because of some of the reforms at Vatican II. You know, uh, you're in the middle of mass and they had this kiss of peace and you turn to one another and talk about the eagles. And it's like, <laughs> why? <laughs> Why going on here? I mean, isn't that God up there? Isn't this a little bit more important? But uh, so he left. And so I didn't really have a, a solid spiritual formation as a kid. And as things go in the modern world, you kind of are taught that you can create your own morality, this very yeah. uh, Kantian um, subjectivist philosophy that you make your own decisions on what is good and bad. Uh, and anybody trying to put a limitation on you is uh, the real evil person. You know, that comes from Emile by uh, Rousseau. So I kind of got to the point where I just thought that, you know, Christianity is a story that people tell themselves, weak people specifically tell themselves uh, to, to get by as a crutch. And I figured I could do it on my own. I left home was really into music. I went to Berkeley College of Music in Boston. And whoa. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, quite the change from small town Pennsylvania. Um, and I think it was day one, you know, you get up there and it's like my roommate, hey, you want to you want to smoke? It's like cigarettes, you know, uh, it wasn't cigarettes. Um, so anyway, being in a, a, a culture like that, you know, I mean, you had teachers on acid. Um, one of uh, my drum teacher actually got arrested for selling marijuana to a student. <laughs> I mean, it was pretty bad. Um, yeah. You'd have Livingston Taylor. Um, well, I shouldn't say anybody's names. I would want to tempt fate. Uh, so anyway, um, 
you know, the music industry is just full of a bunch of degenerates, uh, drug yeah. addicts all. And um, so being in a culture like that, it's pretty easy to start experimenting with different things, as yeah. I think everybody does. Not everybody, um, but a lot of people do. <sighs> and so this brings us up to, oh boy, it must have been 2009, something like that. I had a chronic pain condition. Uh, <laughs> and so I don't know. Um, I had epididymitis. Um, I don't know how many people I'm telling this to on the internet now, but uh, basically it's like a swollen testicle. Um, Ouch. And it's very painful. It's like getting yeah. kicked in the nuts uh, all the time. Oh. You like can't walk. You can't get out of bed. It yeah. was painful. And the doctors didn't know what was wrong. Uh, we think it was just like a genetic thing that happened. Uh, at yeah. that time, my uncle had a similar thing happen to him. So after a month of going in and out, getting tests and testing negative for everything and not really figuring out what to do next, the doctors decided to shut me up uh, by prescribing opiates. Yeah. Uh, started with five milligrams of Vicodin, and then it was seven and a half milligram pills, and then it was f like the step up went from five milligrams to seven milligrams within two weeks, and then by the end of the next two-week segment, they upped it to four 30 milligram Oxycontins a day. <gasps> wow. Yeah. So that was about 120 milligrams yeah. a day. That's, that's a lot. Um, yeah. One second. So, <laughs> you know, a lot of, you, you'll hear like psychedelic people talk a lot about set and setting a lot, right? And Berkeley College of Music was not a very good uh, setting to be in and be prescribed uh, opiates like this. Yeah. Um, my roommate, best friend at the time, uh, I think he's doing well now. Um, he was a struggling heroin addict. And so he would do heroin and I would have my pills and it very quickly got out of hand. Um, yeah. I mean, it got to the point where I had been on this stuff for about nine months straight I mean, you're not supposed to do that. I mean, uh, this stuff, these pills were supposed to be prescribed for people with like a surgery, you know, like back surgery or uh, some sort of procedure like that. And you're off pretty quickly, you know. Um, it's not supposed to be a full time forever yeah. thing. It's not a, yeah. a fix. Um, and so by about eight months in, I was working at a recording studio in downtown Boston and being on that much medication, uh, I was falling asleep at work. You know, yeah. they called the nod. You'd hit the nod and you'd start falling asleep and then you'd wake up and you'd try to keep working. One of my clients at the recording studio was pretty upset <laughs> with the fact that he had spent a lot of money um, to have an engineer that was falling asleep on the job. Yeah. So he gave me something to keep me up. And all of a sudden, now I've got not one habit, but two. Um, and as this progressed, you have to go back into the doctor's office to, you know, take tests and make sure that you're taking what they're prescribing you, etc. Um, and on one of those tests, it came back positive uh, that I had taken cocaine. So they just cut me off. Um, cold turkey. And within Jeez. about eight hours, I called my buddy, John, and was like, hey, we're going to New Jersey. We're going to get some heroin. And we went. And it was like not even a second thought. I mean, when you look at the pharmacology of these things, they're almost identical. I mean, opiates, um, opioids, I guess you could say, the Oxycontins and the Percocets and that kind of stuff. Those are synthetic forms of uh, heroin, basically. Um, and so it was off to the races. Um and that's basically how I lived my life for about two years. Um, it was awful. Um, it quickly became that I used to be passionate about music and concerts and playing live and things like that. And just in a flash, it became my whole waking life was about acquiring and using as much drugs as I possibly could. Um, Everything in my life was oriented around it. Uh, I went homeless for a couple of weeks. I started living in the recording studio that I was working at, you know. Um, it was a pretty difficult time. And I, I don't even know where I 
got the idea that running away from Boston would fix the problem. <laughs> yeah. <you know? laughs> um, but that's where the idea came from. And I left. I went back to Pennsylvania thinking that I could outrun myself. Right? <laughs> yeah. I and moved a lot back in the day. Right? <laughs> unfortunately, you take yourself with you everywhere you go. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, within two weeks of moving to rural Pennsylvania, I found myself with a, a guy who had thrown 10 bags on my kitchen table. And it was like, how is this happening? How yeah. is this happening? Like, I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any connections. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, people think that drug addicts are these dumb low lives, but when you look at the data on people with addiction, especially alcoholism and opiate addiction, they have consistently higher than average IQs and they can get stuff done. Like if you are looking for drugs, it doesn't matter where you are, if you're in the middle of the Sahara Desert, you're fucking fighting yeah, those drugs. It's absolutely. Happening. Absolutely. And you know, it's it is funny that you say that. Uh, it's true. I think that most of the addicts um when I was like, you know, in early recovery, you know, you would go through AA, NA and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. They're some of the smartest, most creative people that you yeah. meet. They really are. Um and high anxiety that, too. Yeah. I think that there's a correlation there. Um Definitely. so I mean we'll get back to my story in a minute maybe, but I think that this entire culture that we're living in, right? This like American experiment, this neoliberal capitalist, whatever uh, system that we're currently living in is a culture of death, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's not a culture of life. It's not one that cherishes having kids yeah. or, um, you know, doing productive things. It's a culture that forces people down roads that people shouldn't really be going down, you know? Um, people constantly getting laid off of their works, replaced now by robots, you know, and it used to be immigrants, now it's robots. Um, people living lives that seem purposeless. Yeah. Uh, because they know that what they can do, they can just be replaced by a machine. Um, and that will make you depressed. That will make you very depressed. Or you can look at all of the lies that are being told about history, about politics, about the economy. Um, and you can clearly see things happen. You could see something happen with your own two eyes mm -hmm. and turn on the news and they will tell you the exact opposite yeah. of what you know that you saw. It's gaslighting and at the highest level. And for people that are uh, anxious and sensitive, but don't have a lot of uh, self-awareness, getting these mixed messages from media and the government and teachers and and family, it's really disorienting. And so I think a lot of us that abuse substances did it to kind of um, to self-correct this, this discombobulation uh, and to make sense of the world around us or at a minimum to numb us yeah. from all the disorientation that was happening. Right. Right. I, I completely agree. I think it's a matter of like you maybe, well, I don't know, for me, maybe it was a kind of, you know, you're walking around and you know, you're at Berkeley and you're going to do music. And then you find out that like an earworm, right? Those things that get stuck in your head, like the millennial whoop or uh, <laughs> these, these different kinds of songs. Yeah. They have it down to a formula. Yeah. It's formulaic. It's yeah. not even like creativity at this point. It's mm -hmm. just how can we market and how can we make as much money as possible? And that'll, that'll like crush your dreams. And so when you start to wake up to these realities, all of a sudden, it's like realizing that there's this air conditioner that's been running the whole time. <laughs> and you start to realize, hey, wait a second. When I when I do drugs, it's like it gets really quiet. It quiet, doesn't bother me yeah. as much. Exactly. Exactly. For me specifically, I guess I don't want to speak for other people. I was prescribed these drugs, right, for pain, for physical pain, for actual legitimate physical pain that I was in at the time. Yeah. yeah. But at some point, I realized that it wasn't just taking away physical pain. It was also taking away emotional pain, mm -hmm. you know, and that was the sticking point. That was why when they cut off the supply, uh, I went to harder drugs. That's why yeah. I went to find illicit stuff on the streets because it was the emotional pain that drove me. It was the, the feeling of peace yeah. that I didn't have to worry about the craziness that I was seeing all around the world, um, around me, I guess. Um, that was what really was a, a driving and motivating factor, I think. And that's so appealing just to get a moment where you don't have to deal with any of this. Uh, it's I, I see how people become drug addicts, especially in this climate. Um, so let's talk a little bit about how you quit. 
Right. So that was um, definitely not quite. Did you hit a rock bottom? And they always talk about rock bottom in AA and like you have to hit rock bottom. I'm like, why do you really have to hit rock bottom? (laughs) Well, I don't know. I hope it was rock bottom because if it wasn't, you know, uh, what's next? Um, But I I think it was rock bottom. Um, It was about a month after. So I moved to Pennsylvania again after Boston, after Berkeley. And um, this kid had come over and he gave me some uh, some dope. And within a month, my habit was two times what it was in Boston. Oh, geez. You know, they say that when you quit and then you go back, the habit never went away and it just keeps growing. And so that was definitely true for me. Um, So within a month, having relocated my entire life, um, if I couldn't kick it just by moving and if I couldn't kick it by uh, just trying to be more active or or doing other things um, maybe I'll never quit and maybe this is how it's going to be forever Um, maybe I can't run away from this that was the thought process uh, that led me to buying about $150 worth of dope putting it in a needle and trying to kill myself so I went to uh, the hospital for about nine days uh, my best friend, you know, called the cops. He was like, look, I think he's about to do something really stupid. And, and had I you did. used intravenously before? Yeah. Okay. A lot. I mean, that's, that was the, uh, after I, after I got off of the, um, prescription stuff, it, it pretty like quickly. Like went straight to intravenous use. Yeah. Not, not really. It was like I had a stuffy nose and that was a good enough excuse. <laughs> Yeah. I don't mean to laugh, but it's just addict thinking. It's like any excuse will do. It's like, I yeah. haven't drank for a month, but I'm thirsty. So <laughs> the sky is blue. I'm going to drink. Oh, it's cloudy. I'm going to drink or whatever. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's that kind of mentality. Yeah. You look for any kind of little thing that you can. And yeah. um, that becomes your, your excuse for the day. Yep. So I was in the hospital for nine days, I got put into a rehab program, which I did do successfully, a 30-day rehab program that was very difficult. It was very difficult um, because on top of the um, prescription opiates that I was given and then subsequently taken off of, they yeah. had also, they had me on uh, Klonopin, oh, which geez. was an anti-anxiety. Now, that combination will kill you. That combination would kill you. Um and they, they had me on that concurrently, actually. I think some people have sued successfully um, families of, you know, people who have died uh, yeah. because they, they took both of them at the same time and, and uh, their hearts just stopped. Um, so I'm very lucky. I'm very lucky that uh, I didn't die when I tried to. And I, I'm lucky that I didn't die just by taking what the doctors gave me yeah. or by, you know, combining. Anyway, the withdrawal from heroin sucked. That was pretty bad. Oh, yeah, definitely. But nothing like the withdrawal from the benzodiazepines. That was like ripping your face off. Um, yeah. Like you didn't even feel comfortable in your own skin. It was pretty yeah. bad. So that took uh, pretty much the entirety of that 30 days um, of that that rehab program just getting to a sense of normal. And so I got out. Uh, I was in a halfway house for about two days and I used pretty much like clockwork. So then I, I bounced around uh, Baltimore for a bit and then Brooklyn a bit. And, Let me ask you uh, a question. Let's go back a little bit. When you went to the halfway house, did you think in earnest before you got there that you were not ever going to use again, that you were not going to relapse? No. Or did you know? I so. Yeah. I think I knew. I knew. I, I wasn't really, you know, it was like, well, I'm happy I'm not depressed anymore, yeah. you know, or I'm happy I'm slightly less depressed than I was when I got into this mess. Yeah. Um, but no, I really couldn't imagine life without drugs. I could yeah. not imagine living my life not like that. Uh, it had been pretty much my entire world for about three years, um, oh, two, three years. And so, um, yeah, and then especially in the music scene. So it's like, well, okay, well, maybe I won't do drugs, but I'm still going to play in a band or I'm going to record bands. And, um, you know, you, you just, you can't get away from it in that, in that kind of an environment. Um, so. I went back to Bloomsburg after a few months. And at this point, I think my dad found out, you know, that uh, I was back in town and he sent out an email to my family saying, look, my son's an addict. He's going to lie to you. He's going to try and take your money. Uh, You know, don't trust him. And that hurt. Wow, that must have been hard for him, too. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I try not to think about, uh, what my parents have gone through. God bless them. They, uh, they did right by me, you know, and, and here's how they did right by me. Basically, uh, he sent that email out and I got angry about it and I ran uh, to downtown where my dad worked and, uh, he was standing outside for some reason. I don't know why the timing on it was something, uh, something providential, I guess. Um, and so I was running towards him. I wanted to go and, and yell at him, right? I wanted to go and <laughs> bitch him bitch him out for being, uh, you know, uh, for putting me on blast to the family. And he just stood there and I was running. And so I decided to put my shoulder down and I tackled him. <gasps> and uh, then I ran away. Um, and so I ran. And as I ran, they called the police on me. And as it was, my dad was friends with the judge and the police chief and the DA. And so they got me arrested and they put me in jail um, because they knew that that was basically the only way that they were going to keep me off of drugs. Um, and so I spent some time there, got sent out to a rehab again, 15 day, and then sent back to jail. Uh, hadn't seen my lawyer, by the way. So it was just a, it was a misdemeanor disturbance of the peace, whatever. And then I uh, got put on a waiting list to get into the Salvation Army uh, program. And that was a six or a nine month program. I can't, can't quite remember. And so that's what I did. Uh, I eventually got transferred up to Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, where I was in the Salvation Army for about six or nine months. Again, I can't really remember. I think it was a six month program, but I, I stayed a little longer. Anyway, um, that was at that period of time, the longest that I had been clean consecutively. Uh-oh, did I lose them? Live chat, let me know if I am still live and we just lost, lost Dave or if my feed is also not coming in either. Hello? Oh, good. Okay. Are we there? We're, we're fine, yeah. Okay. So um, Salvation Army, every day we would wake up, we'd get put on a bus and we would go to this like garment sorting center like the donation center where people would bring their their used clothes and then people would be there and they they sort through that stuff yeah they put it on hangers and racks and they send it out to the stores for sale uh so that's where i was that's where i worked uh for about six months straight and every day we would go out and we'd smoke cigarettes by the dumpster out yeah. back and on a nail hanging next to the dumpster was a rosary and it bothered me it just absolutely bothered me. I don't know why. It was like screaming at me. Oh, did we lose him again? Uh-oh. Well, ask me questions in the live chat so that um, in the interim, I have something to say because sitting here awkwardly by myself is good for nobody. Oh, okay. Is this me yeah. or Yeah. I don't know what's it going on. It might be. I mean, it might be me. I've got Starlink. <laughs> so I oh. think that they just started selling Starlink. And yeah. uh, maybe there's more load on the uh, system. I'm not really sure. Mm. It's okay. Live chat. So anyway, drop some questions in there if, in case it happens again, so that I'm not sitting here. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so anyway, uh, we get uh, I, I found this rosary and it bothered me. And and if you were caught taking anything from the donation sorting center, like you yeah. would be ejected. Yeah. And as a part of my probation, if I got ejected, I'd have to go back to jail. Yeah. So that just shows you the gravity of for. For four months, I looked at this thing every day, and eventually one day I took it. I was like, I can't just look at that at work. I want to have that with me everywhere. I don't know why. I'm not Catholic. I was never raised Catholic. I never went to Catholic school. Um, I don't even know about the rosary, but I just wanted it. I don't know why. I can't explain it. Um, maybe it was an intrigue or maybe it was something to conquer, I guess. Yeah. It, it was a, a weird way of doing it. So. At this point, you know, um, I started doing some research on my own. You know, the Salvation Army people, they wanted you to go to their little church services or whatever. And you did. And it was very performative or whatever, like deliverance prayers and, you know, stuff like that, which maybe I guess that works for some people. But yeah. for me, it wasn't anywhere near enough. Um, AA wasn't enough. NA wasn't enough. And so I'm looking at this rosary and I'm thinking about my family. I'm thinking about my grandmother who prayed the rosary every day until she died. And my great, great grandmother and all the way back, we were Catholic. And all of a sudden, I'm one of the first generations to be born 
kind of not really going to Catholic church every Sunday. So it intrigued me and I started doing some research in it. And it was at this point that I started to become aware. I mean, I had started to think more clearly at this point, you know, Um, the fog was kind of beginning to lift. You're still seeing these issues uh, in the world and the things that would kind of annoy you or drive you to use the drugs. That's all still there. Um, But so I started researching and Googling and I was definitely a little bit of a Marxist back then. I was definitely a a commie. Um, And so I was into like this whole like self-identifying thing. Like if you said you were a 400 pound black woman, I'd have to believe you because that's how you (laughs) self-identified because, you know, we all, (laughs) because we all, uh, we all make up our own reality and we all make up our own morality. Um, That's what I believed at the time. Right. And so that coupled with this curiosity of Catholicism drove me to research it a little bit. You know, um, there were just some questions that I had had about, you know, what is it? Why is it? Why do people still go? I mean, what's up with this Christianity thing? But also just this like, I mean, I think it was an actual grace, you know, from my parents who were praying for me. Uh, my dad had reverted during my addiction. Um, he was looking for answers. He was trying to figure out what had happened. How did I mess up? Where? Why is my son an addict trying to come to the understanding of that? And he found his way back to the Catholic Church and brought my mom with him. And um, of course, I didn't know that at this point. Um, you know, I was just kind of on my own. Uh, we were not on speaking terms. Um, so I'm Googling and I'm presented with this kind of, uh, decision to make here. Do I pray if I were ever going to pray, which I probably won't, but if I were ever going to pray the rosary, would I pray 15 mysteries or 20, right? There was a change. John Paul II had added five mysteries to the rosary in like the eighties, just because they, they can't leave anything untouched. This is like modern innovation. And I decided, you know, if I ever was going to pray, I would probably just pray the three. You know, that's what my grandmother would have done and my great grandmother. So, you know, we'll go with that. Um, Meanwhile, you know, things were just kind of pittering along. Um, I wasn't in a particularly good situation. Um, You know, I hadn't dealt with any of the problems. I mean, I had gotten sober for about nine months, but I hadn't dealt with any of the problems. Yeah. Um, And so one night my situation was bad and it was so bad that I actually thought, you know what? this is it, God, I'm going to give this a go. I'm going to try praying this rosary because I've tried the deliverance prayers. I've tried the Protestant churches. I've tried AA and NA. And this is your last shot. Basically, it was an ultimatum. And I probably shouldn't have done that, but I did. And so I'm, I'm confronted with these three sets of mysteries. I don't know if you know anything about the rosary, but you have the, the joyful mysteries, the sorrowful mysteries, and the glorious mysteries. And as a depressed, you know, recovering heroin addict, I didn't understand anything about joy. There was no joy left in the world and glory. Get out of here. Are you kidding me? But I did understand sorrow and suffering. And the sorrowful mysteries basically follow Christ as he goes up to the cross, um, being scourged and mocked and uh, the crown of thorns and uh, ultimately the crucifixion. And I, I understood suffering and pain. And so I was able to muster the, the strength, I guess you could say, to, to pray the five mysteries, the sorrowful mysteries. And this doesn't really happen for everybody, um, and you shouldn't expect it to happen. But the next day, everything changed. Um, I wound up getting a new apartment. Uh, I got a motorcycle so I could actually get a job. I could, you know, bike to places. Um, the probation was coming to an end. And I was starting to see like an end in sight and my, my perspective had changed. And so I decided to pray the sorrowful mysteries again. Uh, and I continued to do that because there was something deeply profound about meditating on the sufferings of somebody else and not just wallowing in my own, uh, self-pity, my own sufferings and my own, uh, kind of guilty conscience, um, thinking back on all the bad things that I'd done to people. So I wanted to know more about Catholicism and I decided to do some reading, you know, and, and everything that you read is like a pedophile priests, this, and, you know, Christopher Columbus was a white supremacist that came to America to enslave the natives. Okay. Guy, I figured I owed it. Uh, if I would let my, you know, uh, 
white male barista self-identify as a 400 pound black woman, then shouldn't I allow the Catholic church to self-identify? Shouldn't I let it tell me what it is? Right. And so I, this is back in the age of a free internet, right? We don't have that anymore. And I don't know if anybody would be able to go down this path now, but back then in 2012, 2011, 2012, you could actually research things on the internet and get like a fairly honest thing coming out the other side of the algorithm. Yeah. So I found out about these things called ecumenical councils, and they are basically where the church defines what it believes and what it teaches. And I read all of them. And I got to the point where you get to the 1965 Vatican II, and I'm like, uh, nope. <laughs> that was written by either a Protestant or a commie or both. Like, <laughs> that's not it. Um, and so I decided to at least give it a shot to try and go to a Catholic church. I went uh, to St. Joseph's on the hill in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania. And I, I, I kid you not, I walk in the front door on Sunday. I open the door to the sanctuary and I look in and I'm like, what? And I went back outside and checked the sign to see if it was really a Catholic church. And it said Catholic. And I'm like, they must be letting Protestants use it. Because that's not Catholic. That's not what I think of when I think of Catholicism, you know. Yeah. Uh, that's not what I read about in these ecumenical councils. Um, and so I might be getting a little into the weeds on the Catholic thing at this point. But the point of the matter is that I had been going to AA and going to NA. When you're in rehab, they usually like prescribe that you do mm-hmm. that or even probation, parole, that, that kind of thing. Um, but the point is that AA and NA didn't really helped me much. I mean, as a matter of fact, most of the times that you wind up going to the rooms like that, you'll find people that are looking for, uh, you know, people to sell drugs to because they want to make money. Yeah. Or they'll try to, uh, this probably wasn't a problem for you, but 13 step. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's where like, you know, you go and pick up some, some person that's struggling with addiction and, uh, you know, the rest is history, I guess. But, uh, yeah, and I don't want to disparage AA and NA because in terms of recidivism rates, um, it, it does provide people. No, it's no, really bad. It's but one percent of people that go treatment programs do. What I will say that's positive about um, AA because it has provided me with with something. It's this feeling that I am the only person that's been a piece of shit on the planet, and that I'm the mm. worst piece of shit. When I go to AA, I realize that like alcoholics are basically the same, and all of us are have done this the same things to our friends to our families and everything yeah. like that um and that makes me feel better <laughs> there is there is an element of um knowing that you're not alone yeah it's really really important yeah really important with this thing um and that was kind of what i was even getting out of the rosary like yeah. looking at someone else's sufferings right, right. I, I just it wasn't in the rooms that i found what i needed i guess but i definitely remember one day specifically um, as I was researching this Catholic thing, um, I remember sitting in a circle and you know how they'd pray the Lord's prayer mm-hmm. at the end of all the meetings. And I remember standing next to a Muslim on my right side and a Jew on the left and all praying the, our father together. And I'm That's like, this somewhat is preposterous. Not... <laughs> yeah. I was like this, how does this work? How does this work? And so this was kind of the beginning of uh, coming to a better philosophical understanding of reality that, yeah. you know, we've got these three mutually exclusive religions here and we're somehow all praying the same prayer together. Something's got to give. This was the kind of thing that would drive me to use, like looking at th- these kinds of inconsistencies. Yeah. Um, and, and I didn't really understand it, or what I was looking at. Um, so <laughs> AA and NA were founded by what Dr. Bob and Bill Will. Freemason. Not mm-hmm. that that, you know, not all Freemasons are bad. I get it. And they're not the real enemy. They are kind of an outgrowth of the enemy Judaism for Gentiles in a way. Um, but the point of AA that I came to after a couple of months of pretty heavy research was that it seems like AA and NA were the, the Catholic program, right? Like the Catholic prescription for how to live your life. Yeah divorced from Jesus and divorced from the church, right? Like this idea of uh, accepting that you've done bad things and that there's a higher power and then making a list of all the bad things you had done and the people you had wronged and then telling somebody, right? 
telling somebody. That was yeah. the big one. So that's basically describing confession. Yeah. It's basically describing confession. And then you do your penance and then you go and you tell other people that they can do their penance too, basically is what AA is. And so I figured, well, when I was doing drugs, you know, I would get the best shit I could get, <laughs> you know, the best that money could buy. And if I'm going to do recovery for real, if I'm going to uh, try and live life that isn't beholden to, to drug dealers, um, I've only got one option. That's to go for the straight dope. And if these guys copy the Catholic <laughs> church, right? If they copy the Catholic church's program, then I'm just going to go with the Catholic church. Shoot that know? SSPX right into my veins. <laughs> so, um, and, and it's, it, there is like a really interesting history with it. Uh, I think, uh, was it Cardinal Spellman was actually presented with the Alcoholics Anonymous book and mm -hmm. refused to censor it, which is strange because there's plenty in that book that at the time uh, should have been put on the index, uh, mm -hmm. this kind of uh, religious syncretism, um, ecumenism in a way, getting, you know, different religions together to, to pray. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a no-no for Catholics. Um, so it's interesting that Spellman chose not to censor that book, um, especially when, you know, the Catholic Church could have done something. You know, they could have created their own groups right. or support support groups, really. But they saw uh, the utility in it clearly, and then they probably saw that it would bring people to Catholicism. Well, I don't know. I don't know. That's I. I didn't follow that rabbit hole to the end. I call. I remember calling the archives uh, for the Archdiocese of New York, and well, you I tried. To, <laughs> I wanted to get my hands on it, and they would not let me into the archives. So I never got to the bottom of that. Uh, so um, at this point, I'm going to mass. Um, my dad had brought me. Uh, I, you know, we found out. Yeah, we, you know, we got together at like Cracker Barrel <laughs> and talked and he was wondering, how is it that you are getting along? And I pulled a rosary out of my pocket and he looks at me and he pulled a rosary out of his pocket. Oh. And this was strange because my dad had never been a religious guy. I'd never seen him pray before or go to church before. So the idea that he was looking at this Catholic thing too was interesting. And so it was his birthday coming up and I didn't have any money. Um, and I said, what do you want? Uh, what do you want for your birthday? And he said, I want you to come to mass with me. And I was thinking to myself about the church, St. Joseph's where I'd walked in and it was like a bunch of Protestants. Right. And I, I was like, okay, my dad's off the goop, you know, uh, but I'll go with him, I guess to, to his church. And it did turn out to be an SSPX church. Uh, a traditional Latin mass church. And all of a sudden, all of these things that I'd read about in these ecumenical councils while I was trying to get to the bottom of it, it all started to come alive. And I started yeah. to see and understand things that you can't get from just reading it on the page. Mm -hmm. So at this point, I had pretty much gotten to the point where I couldn't prove Catholicism wrong. Uh, yeah. I could not really find any logical inconsistencies within it, yeah. uh, within within the system itself. And I decided... I want to be Catholic. So I approached the priest and started talking to him and he handed me this stack of paper about that thick with all of the different sins you could commit, right? Because <laughs> you have to make a confession. And I had been baptized when I was eight. Um, and so I had to confess all of the sins that I committed all the way back to that point. I was, like 20, I was 22, 23 at this point. How do you and, even do that? I mean, you can't. Well, it's an impossible task. I, I did. I did. I did get through it eventually, but it took about a year. It yeah. took about a year of sitting down with these papers and reading through them and making lists and looking at this massive, massive list and relapsing. Oh, you relapsed? Times. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. Two or three times. It was pretty bad. I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, you're, you're confronting evil itself when you're confronting yeah. sin. And when you understand the gravity of that, um, it can it can be difficult, a difficult thing to get through without help living on your own in an apartment in a city, you yeah. know. So eventually, after a, about a year of trying and failing, um, I'd moved back to Bloomsburg a little bit closer to my parents. Uh, they would pick me up every Sunday and take me to mass. Um, I had heard about this thing called a retreat, right? A spiritual retreat, um, basically where you go for a week uh, to, it's like a monastery. Uh, it's quiet, no eye contact with people, no speaking at all. 
uh, only the priests were allowed to speak. And then when you were in spiritual direction with them, you could, you could talk. Um, so quiet, it was a very quiet place. You got to turn in your cell phone, you know, no distractions. Um, and the first three days out of this five day retreat, were basically just making the preparation to make a general confession, um, understanding the gravity of sin, understanding why Christ died on the cross, understanding penance and, and, and conjuring up sorrow for the things that you had done. Right. Um, so on Wednesday, I made my first confession, a general confession. It was about 45 minutes long and I cried. And then about 30 minutes later, I went to my first high mass and received communion for the first time. And I cried again. Um, and so that was the real turning point for me. That was really the high turning point. Of Did you feel forgiven? Uh, this is where I'm really hung up. And the reason See, that, that I... was the hardest part, yeah. that was the hardest part. That was the feeling reason the why forgiveness. Yeah. it's not feeling the forgiveness. It was understanding that I am forgivable. How does one do that? Cause I also know that it's a grave sin you know, I've confessed everything to the best of my ability, and I still live with so much guilt and shame on a daily basis. And it's because I think fundamentally, I believe that I'm not forgiven. And I know that's a grave sin to think that I'm that that I'm beyond forgiveness from God. I haven't done anything that bad. I mean, good Lord. But um, I, I still feel that way. And I can't seem to stop or overcome this. And I'm really mm. stuck in this uh, in this mentality that like, that I have to live with shame because God's never going to forgive me. And I don't know why. Yeah. So for me, it was a little bit different, but maybe it'll help someone or you. I don't know. So the idea that when I was like really in the throes of my addiction, right? My dad made these phone calls to the police, to the DA, to the judge. Um, I'm the one that supplied the circumstance by tackling my dad. Yeah. Um, but he kind of capitalized on that, I guess you could say. Uh, for for good um he helped me yeah i wouldn't be here today without that most likely and so uh, coming coming to the understanding that that was good that i needed that that he did that out of love for out me of love right right and not to resent him for that mm -hmm. right that was very difficult to get past to get past the resentment of my dad. How come dad who was raised Catholic, why didn't you raise me Catholic? You know, to come over the resentment of the rest of the family that had left the faith. You know, you were given this program of life on a silver platter and you trashed it. You left, you, you left the church. Why, why did you do that? Why did you trash that gift? And there was a resentment to that, right? Um, and your father is this kind of earthly manifestation of God, right? So if you can't forgive your father, your real father, how could you be forgiven by your heavenly father right. if you're at odds with one another? And so for me, it was coming to, to grips, to understanding that love isn't about making someone feel good necessarily. It's not about condoning their bad behaviors. It's about doing something substantial that's good. And it's sometimes uncomfortable and sometimes very uh, difficult, you know, um, but that's what love is. It's, it's yeah. not this, this Hollywood bullshit, you know, it's real. And so when I was able to come to grips with that and I was able to forgive my father, for the perceived slights. Um, that's where I was able to find the ability to forgive myself. Um, and that was the biggest hurdle to, yeah. to, to be able to confront my sins and to, to, to believe that I even could be forgiven. Not even that you feel forgiven or forgiven, whatever. Not even that you could, not that you feel that, but just that it's possible right. that I could be forgiven. Right, getting to that place was tough, but once I got there, um, that's what that's what really helped me uh, move on with my life and become successful. Well, 
successful. <laughs> I mean, like what? I'm not like Elon Musk, you know, I'm not like rolling in money, but I have a baby. I have a yeah. wife that loves me. And a uh, wonderful you know? wife and a beautiful home. I mean, you've, you've right. done wonderful that's, things with your life. That's success. That's yeah. real success. And so um, the way that I've been able to continue down that path of success has been to uh, be Catholic, to continually go to confession, right? To uh, to pray, to go to mass, um, to try and recall those um, resolutions that I had made on that retreat all those years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, that's the program that if I deviate from, I will run into problems. Yeah. It's happened. You know, it's like you get close to the edge depending on the, the circumstances of who you're with, you know, yeah, it's like yeah. a knife's and edge. You know? Exactly. That's exactly true. And you always think, you know, I, I'm not having cravings. Everything's going so well. I have so much to live for. And then you start to get into this comfort of like, well, maybe I could just have one drink. And this actually mm. happened to me. I, I got sober 10 years ago. And then um, and then I smoked tons and tons of weed. I wasn't drinking, so I felt fine about it, you know. And then um, like, I don't know, between five and three years ago, there were a handful of times where I would just drink what in a way that I thought was normally. I'm like, I'm not getting totally wasted. So does it really matter? And then the last time I drank, which was about two years ago, I just had a few glasses of wine and it was fine and I felt awesome and nothing happened. And in many ways, that was the absolute worst outcome. It would have been better if I puked all over myself and slapped my husband in the face in many ways right. because there, there was not a catastrophic outcome to my drinking. And it's so it made me believe like, wow, maybe I could do this normally. Maybe this time it'll be a little Maybe this time right? it'll be different. But I know it will never be different. And if I continue down that road, um, it, you know, I'm just going to end up exactly where I was before. I'll be in a worse place because I have a husband and child now. Um, and and it, to that point, to that point, one of the people that was very, very influential for me, the guy that helped me get into the Salvation Army uh, for that, that third and final rehab, um, really good guy, really good guy. We would talk about Tolkien all the time. We would, uh, when I became Catholic, we would debate theology uh, all the time. You know, he was a heroin addict too. Uh, and then he became an officer in the Salvation Army. He started to run mm -hmm. a church. He became a pastor. He got married. He had three kids. And That's he great. Relapsed. Oh, no. Yeah. And so the point is that, like, to understand why do people use drugs? Why do people drink? It's not that you have a drug problem or an alcohol problem. We have a spiritual problem in not just this country, but mm -hmm. the world at this point really has fallen uh, fallen under a shadow in a way. Um, it's funny, you know, you look at, is it Lenin or Trotsky that said that religion is the opiate of the masses? Well, guess what? We don't have religion anymore. And yeah. is it any wonder that people are turning to opiates? opiates. You know, so uh, understanding that it's a spiritual problem that we all have that drives us to, to do something, to use something that numbs the understanding that we all have deep down, that yeah. we do have a problem. We do yeah. have a spiritual unease about us. And that disease um, is what we cure by using a drug or drinking, yeah. right? It solves that problem at first until it starts to become the problem, you know? Yeah. So I think a lot of people don't understand that. Like, you know, you could talk to somebody and they would be like, oh, well, you know, you're such a fuck up. Why did you use drugs? Why did you, you know, drink or something like that? But they don't understand what's really going on here, right? Yeah. Uh, and there is definitely a personal responsibility that everybody that uses drugs or drinks, they do have that personal responsibility for their actions. But this culture that we live in, this hypocrisy in our society and the lies that we are swimming in and bombarded with every day, how could you not want to quiet that down? I, yeah. I mean, I don't understand how you could not want to escape sometimes from that. Yeah. Right. And Definitely. so it's a matter of some people escape with gambling or with pornography. 
It doesn't have to be drugs. It could be Wall Street bets. It could be, you know, um, stock market. It could be crypto. It could be exercise. Twitter. <laughs> Twitter. Yeah. I mean, whatever. I mean, there's all kinds of different escapes that will take you out of where you're at and take your mind off of whatever it is that uh, is bothering you. Um, so, you know, I think that's, I mean, having that critical understanding of that, I think is important because you can stop drinking. And I know plenty of like dry alcoholics. Yeah. You know, yeah. they just stopped drinking, but they never worked on that spiritual problem that they had or yeah. they, they never really progressed past just putting down the drink, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, uh, that's something else to, to think about too. I think that's definitely true. I mean, and I think that that is the the problem that I'm having right now. I mean, one, I, I'm dealing with all this guilt and shame from things that I've done 10, 15 years ago. Um, and and then there's this uh, this image dichotomy that I have where people had pretty much no idea that I ever even used to be like this. But if you told somebody from 10 years ago that I was giving people advice on the internet, they would be like, don't listen to this crazy <laughs> bitch. You know? And so I have this, this mental image of, of who I am and who I'm presenting myself as. And I just figured that, that it would be cathartic <laughs> if I just came out and I just talked to people about how I am an alcoholic. I'm, I'm in recovery and it's difficult for me sometimes as it is. I mean, I'm sure you have cravings and, and I thought maybe it would give me some accountability too. Yeah. I mean the craving, it was funny. I was talking with my dad actually before we did this podcast um, just to see if he had some other insights that I should share um, and it was funny, you know, I talked with him about this. It was even in the first couple of times that I started going to mass, right. With, with, with my parents, it's like, you're sitting there in the pews and it's like, if you've ever seen a Latin mass, it's, it's one yeah. of the most beautiful things you can see. Yeah, it is. Um, and all of a sudden you're like thinking about spoons and needles and it's like, <laughs> how is this possible? You know? And, and so on the one hand, you have this like very real, like temptation, that's mm -hmm. happening that you cannot shake. Yeah. And on the other hand, you're like, why am I thinking about that? Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's um, so it's, it's interesting, but it does get better over time. It mm -hmm. does get better over time. And depending on, again, like the things that you fill your life with and the pursuits that you have, the, the things that you use to fill that space, I guess you could say, you know, that's uh, what will eventually you'll find yourself daydreaming at mass about ham radios, maybe yeah. <laughs> as, opposed to, yeah. uh, as opposed to drugs or something like that. Um, mm. Yeah, there was, uh, there's a lot of other stuff that I'm, 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 I'm thinking of, but I'm, I'm not quite sure. Uh, no, no, it's okay. We should wind sure. down, but I did have one question. Do you, I, I know a lot of people, especially right now are, Dealing with alcoholism, dealing with addiction, uh, drug deaths are up, I think, 18 to 25 percent since coronavirus started. It's a very difficult time to be battling these demons. Do you have any advice um, outside of of go coming to Catholicism and finding Jesus Christ? Do you have any advice for people, especially in early sobriety? Yeah. Well, I mean, just before we even get to that, I was going to say, I mean, you've got to see this. This is uh, 10 Western states in America see drug overdose deaths increase by nearly 100%. Hamilton, Ontario's opioid deaths during pandemic among worst in Ontario to the point that they stopped counting the number of deaths due to they overdose. They can't do that. Good grief. They, they stopped counting. Um, so the, the thing is, it's funny because it's like, I remember I actually won an award uh, for some work that I had done. I don't know if you can, if it'll focus. There we go. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, an award that I got from the Pennsylvania Association of Broadcasters for a, a broadcast series I had done about the opiate epidemic and exposing that in a week-long series. Um, and we were talking about these kinds of issues in 2016, 2017 on the radio, but nobody's talking about this anymore. Yeah. And I'm suspicious because of that. I'm wondering what's going on. Are, are, is it actually up? because of the pandemic and people are stuck at home and they're bored and they're depressed, they lost their jobs. And so they're using, or is it down because people aren't going out anymore and they aren't able to get it? You know, there's just nothing out there. I've tried Googling, I've tried using Bing and DuckDuckGo. No one's talking about this stuff. Yeah. And that, that makes me suspicious that this problem is way worse than yeah. anybody is understanding. You look at, uh, you look at Weimar Germany 
mm-hmm. you look at the conditions that they had there, the, uh, the, the rampant uh, unemployment, uh, the homelessness, the drug abuse, the overdose deaths, the suicides, it's coming to America. It's yeah. here now. It is here. And um, so just to just to understand the gravity of this thing so that, you know, if, if you, not you, but one of the people watching this uh, are struggling, like you're not alone. There are yeah, other people are out alone. there that are are struggling. There yeah. are a lot of people out there that will unfortunately go the route of like, um, is Antoine Dodson, right? Do you know who he was? That he sounds was a, very familiar. He was a young guy that was at Charlottesville that got doxxed. Uh, and he committed suicide, he was didn't there. he? It was a heroin overdose. Oh, gosh, that's right. Yeah. So, I mean, these leftists will find, you know, and they will push your buttons uh, and try to, uh, you know, I mean, th- they would be happy uh, yeah. to, to watch, you know, all the all the people. So, I mean, like just being right wing doesn't solve the problem being Catholic even. I mean, I know priests that have struggled with addictions. Yeah. Right. That doesn't necessarily solve the problem either. So, I mean, just becoming Catholic and finding Jesus, that doesn't help either. I mean, it does help. I mean, obviously it helps. Hello. But I'm saying that like just being Catholic and going to mass, not not taking any like real concrete steps. I mean, um, if you've got a problem, first of all, admit that you've got the problem. Uh, Practical advice. If you're being tempted, do not stay quiet about it. Talk to somebody. Tell someone. Yeah. And that's where AA comes in, in, in handy. I mean, yeah. it, you can call anybody in any AA meeting. But that, again, I hate to be so anti-AA, but it's like you go to an AA meeting and then you say, hey, I've been thinking about using. You are just advertising that you are a potential drug buyer to some that's nefarious true. person. But I've That's, come in contact, contact with weight, but my alcohol is my problem though. So I don't really know this. Anything. Right, right, right. Yeah. For me, it's it, it, alcohol never really bugged me. Um, it was, it's straight up like heroin. Like yeah. I can't find, find a priest then. Well, you could find a priest. You could go to confession. You could talk to a friend, your girlfriend. Yeah. I mean, just the, the point is being honest, right? I mean, a lot of the reason why people use drugs is they do see this kind of uh, hypocrisy in culture. Um, and yeah, I mean, just being honest with yourself about your situation and being honest with your partner, your spouse, uh, your closest friend, your parents. Uh, telling them, <laughs> well, that see, that's hard, but when you can do that, um, I'm really lucky, uh, to, to still have my parents to have been Me able to too. make amends yeah. with my parents and to be able to talk to them about issues that I'm having or, or yeah. to find, um, suggestions on I bet they're so proud of you right now oh I just hope that they they forgive me (laughs) for putting them through everything that I did my parents do yeah you know I guess so so don't don't let these things um just brood around in the darkness right that's it's just going to continue to grow and grow and grow until all of a sudden um you're gonna you're gonna wind up using and wondering how the hell you got there yeah right um that's number one. Number two is I cannot stress enough. I mean, I, between, between cutting the people out of my life that were into drugs, number one, and then when I became, you know, uh, right wing, whatever, <laughs> you know, uh, I don't even know if right wing or conservative, I, I, I'm, I don't know, but a nationalist, maybe, uh, these different ideas, like when I came out with those, uh, as espousing that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, anybody that I hadn't already cut out of my life left me. Yeah. So I got a fresh start. Um, I didn't have to worry about baggage from friends that I had, you know, uh, lived down the street from and like, Oh, well, you know, it's so-and-so I got to go to their house, you know, um, be very careful about who you surround yourself with. Yeah. You know, are you surrounding yourself with people that are going to help you lead a successful life right? or people who are going to um, bring it down. And everybody so, really knows the answer to that when they think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me, Dave. It's such an inspirational story. And when I was thinking about who I should talk to, um, I don't, I don't know that I know anybody that's come as far as you have after having such a very, very serious addiction. And when I talk to you about, about my problems and everything, you, we're all, I'm always met with a, 
lack of judgment and a, a, an amount of understanding that is just unparalleled. And I really appreciate that on a personal level. And I'm sure the audience does. I saw a lot of people in the live chat that are like, this, this is exactly what I needed to hear. Um, so yeah, if you guys are struggling, feel free to reach out. And um, Dave's links are all in the description below. So that's where you can find him on his media. And if, if there's anything else you want to say, Dave Riley, Riley. <laughs> uh, <There we> <laughs> I'm um, really no, sorry. I, about I was just going to say, look, I got uh, for now uh, until I get the platform from Twitter, my DMS are open. Uh, if anybody needs to talk or whatever, I've always been pretty open and uh, you know, uh, whatever it is that I can do to help. Uh, I've run a YouTube channel. I'm thinking about streaming a little bit more off and on you uh, it's youtube.com slash Vox Catholica V O X C A T H O L I C A. Uh, we've got a couple of, um, lecture series that are pretty good by Father Purdy. Um, I think that stuff might might be helpful to a lot of people. Uh, so maybe go check that out. And, um, you know, don't, uh, don't stay quiet. You know, uh, you're not alone. Uh, there's a lot of people that are going through a lot of bad things, and it's going to get a lot worse. So yeah. um, we're stronger together. And, we, you know, we should, uh, we should be able to help each other out of this and hopefully um, come to some sort of spiritual rebirth not just individually but maybe even as a nation wow what a lovely note to end on i'm going to go ahead and end the stream so i can have a little cry all right <laughs> <laughs> thank you dave and thank you live chat i'll see you guys later bye-bye see ya